At this time, any children present are free to go to Children's Church with Miss Martha, and I'll invite you to find Proverbs chapter 10 in your Bibles. Proverbs chapter 10 is where we find ourselves again this Sunday. As I hear pages flipping, people finding Proverbs chapter 10, just a quick poll. We, we began this year talking about New Year's resolutions, and I'm curious, if you would, raise your hand if you made a New Year's resolution this year. Very, very, I, David, I think you were the only one in this whole church that made a New Year's resolution. Okay, I'm not going to ask the second question then. So I was going to have everybody raise their hand if they made a New Year's resolution, and I was going to have everybody put their hand down if they've already failed in their New Year's resolutions, but there would be too much um, focus on David if we did that. So never mind. You guys already have it all together. You don't need New Year's resolutions. Well, if you'll recall, we began this year thinking about New Year's resolutions and the fact that it indicates our natural human desire to live wisely and to live more wisely. We want to make better decisions. And I shared with you that the top three resolutions reported for this year are all basically the same one resolution, and it has to do with our physical bodies. Everybody just wants to be more physically fit and healthy. So it was losing weight or exercising more, things like that. And that's a a good thing to resolve. That's a good thing to try to do, to try to take better care of our bodies. But it's not very well-rounded, and it doesn't reflect accurately the priorities that God lays out for us in the scripture. And so we began the year looking in Proverbs, which is a book of wisdom, God's wisdom, to try to align our desires for wisdom with what God teaches is wise. And so the first Sunday we looked at the wisdom of righteousness, and then the wisdom of diligence, and then the wisdom of receptivity last week. And this week, our last sermon from Proverbs for for January We're going to look at the wisdom of integrity. So if we're letting these shape our resolutions, which you guys don't make resolutions, which is fine, but if you did, you would be resolved to pursue righteousness, diligence, receptivity, and then today, integrity. So we've all heard the word integrity. Let's make sure we understand what we mean by the word integrity before we read the passage. Literally, the Hebrew word that's translated into our English word integrity means completeness or wholeness. And the idea is consistent behavior that comes from a complete heart. Consistent behavior, consistent character, consistent decisions morally and ethically that come out of a a whole heart, a complete heart, a heart that has been made whole in God through Jesus Christ. So the opposite of the biblical idea of integrity would be inconsistent behavior that comes from a divided heart. Inconsistent moral and ethical behavior that comes from a heart that's all fractured up and divided. So you were designed to live wholeheartedly. You were designed for your whole heart to be devoted to God. And because of that wholehearted devotion to God, all the whole array of your decision-making and your roles in life, all are brought into unity because they're all expressions of this one desire to trust God, love God, honor God. That's how human beings were designed to live. Because of sin, that's been damaged. Our hearts are all 
shattered and fractured and divided up to a bunch of different allegiances, which causes us a great deal of moral and ethical confusion in our decisions. So, is everybody still with me? I know that's a tall thing to ask. Let's start with an in-depth definition of a word. But it's going to be good if we're on the same page to proceed. So, is everybody still, everybody still with me? Okay. I'll give you a little illustration of, of how this divided heart leading to inconsistent behavior can be lived out. Uh, some of you may know, once upon a time, I was a waiter at Olive Garden. This was one of my many former jobs that led to where I am today. I was a waiter at Olive Garden in Raleigh. Now, when you're waiting tables at a restaurant like Olive Garden, you get to see the dining room, but also the kitchen. And when you're just eating at Olive Garden, you just see the dining room. But I got to see the dining room and the kitchen. And I can tell you, at least at that Olive Garden, there was a big difference in how the wait staff behaved in the dining room versus how they behaved in the kitchen. In the dining room, the wait staff was all very composed and charismatic and polite and respectful and mature. But as soon as they went through those swinging doors into the kitchen, all the charisma just turned to chaos. All the please and thank you just turned to the most vile profanity you can imagine and creative profanity. Their dining room persona covered their kitchen reality. And in the kitchen, the truth came out. I can remember two, I'll tell you two specific stories that I remember. One, there was a waiter. Uh, He was a young man. He actually looked very Italian. And he was super charismatic out in the dining room. All the customers loved when they got this guy. Seemed very confident in himself, very put together. In reality, he was an emotional basket case. And I can remember one time, him, you know, he was out, out in the dining room helping his customers, and I remember him coming into the kitchen, and I was in the kitchen, and him slamming down his folder that had all of his tips and his orders, stuff flying everywhere, and he marched over to the corner where there was a table, sat underneath the table, Indian style, and wept. I don't know what was going on, but the people in the dining room never saw that reality. He eventually got it together, picked up all his stuff, and went back out into the dining room with the composure that he had before. He was, who he was out there in no way reflected what was going on in his heart. Another instance I'll tell you, one of our managers uh, was very patient and gentle with his words when he would come out into the dining room and deal with upset customers and things of that nature. Now, I remember his behavior in the kitchen being completely the opposite of that. I can remember one time when he actually grabbed one of the waiters by the throat and his face bulging with anger, and he said, I remember his phrase, I will end you if you do that again. And then I have to imagine soon he got the wrinkles out of his shirt, went back out into the dining room, and he was super nice and gentle and patient again. Now, I tell you all this because many people live their lives like that. They have a dining room persona that they use to cover up their kitchen reality. And what the Bible teaches us here is that that's foolish. That's not how a wise person lives. That doesn't work well in reality as God has arranged it. When God makes you whole through Jesus Christ, you get to drop the multiple personalities that you learn to maintain in order to keep people thinking well of you. And you get to be fully yourself from a whole heart. You get to be the same in the dining room and in the kitchen. 
as you are made whole through Jesus Christ. The you on the inside aligns with the you presented on the outside, and you are one whole person, and you can live with integrity. Who you are with your church aligns with who you are with your friends and who you are with your family and who you are at work and who you are with strangers and who you are in the car when cut off in traffic and who you are on the internet. All comes into congruency in Jesus Christ. And you can live with the kind of honesty and sincerity that comes from having a whole heart, wholly devoted to God. You can live with integrity, which isn't only right, it's wise. So that brings us to our verse. And just one verse today, uh, that's not true. One verse in Proverbs, but it's actually going to propel us to a whole passage in the New Testament. So forget I said that. We're going to start with Proverbs chapter 10, verse 9. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 9. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. So integrity isn't just right, it's wise. And it's wise for many reasons, but the one presented to us here is because integrity leads to security. Integrity leads to security. When you walk with integrity, you walk with firm footing in this world. You walk like someone with hiking boots on, on solid ground. But when you lack integrity, when you make your ways crooked, you walk like someone walking across a rickety old rope bridge, and each plank could give way at any moment, and you kind of know it. And so you feel insecure in your footsteps through life. The opposite of security that comes from integrity is the insecurity that comes from what the Bible here calls crookedness. Another way to frame it would be anxiety. Anxiety is, by mental health professionals, the clear winner in terms of the mental health issue that most people struggle with in America. Now, regardless of what you think about it in terms of mental illness or not, it's clear that many, many people struggle with feelings of anxiety and insecurity in this world. And uh, many of you do struggle with it, have struggled with it. I've shared with you before, it's an issue for me. Uh, I get pretty anxious over particular things. Some of you perhaps have gotten to a point where it's so severe you sought counsel for it, and that's wise. I think it's always wise to seek counsel. Uh, I have sought counsel for the struggles that I've had with anxiety. I do recommend, just as an aside, talk to somebody with a Christian worldview who loves the Lord and knows the Bible. Otherwise, you could easily be led astray in how you try to deal with these things. But imagine if you could go to Jesus himself as your counselor. You're feeling just super anxious in this world, super insecure. Uh, You do feel like the, the ground beneath you could give way at any moment. So you go to the best counselor around, the wonderful counselor, Jesus Christ, and just imagine yourself sitting in the couch there across from him, and just pouring your heart out, how, how you feel, just like you have no security in this world. He very well might first not talk about your circumstances, or your past, or even your chemical makeup within yourself, although all those may be factors. He might, according to this scripture, first look into your integrity. He might say, well, to get at this feeling of insecurity, let's talk about your integrity. 
your heart? Is your heart whole? Are you living with a heart divided up in, in allegiance to many different things? And is it causing you to live with multiple personalities and try to keep up multiple versions of yourself? Because that definitely can lead to anxiety. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that all anxiety indicates a lack of integrity. But I am saying that a lack of integrity will lead to anxiety. That's what this passage says anyway. If you walk in integrity, generally speaking, you'll walk securely. You'll have firm footing as you move through life. Why? Well, for one reason, the reason pointed out here is because you have nothing to hide. It says, whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. The alternative in this passage to integrity is crookedness. It's elsewhere translated wickedness. It's the idea of of twistedness, twisting away from God's straight path of wisdom in his word that he gives us. And it leads to inconsistency in our lives that comes from the divided, crooked heart that's not wholly devoted to God. Everything from white, little white lies, that's an example of crookedness. All-out deception, an example of crookedness. All of the cover-ups, small or large, that we try to do to hide our imperfections, our sins, our flaws, and our folly is included in this idea of crookedness. Any kind of hiddenness. Now, it's clear here, generally speaking, in the world as God has created it, he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Now, we've experienced this in our society recently. If you think about the Me Too movement, I think everybody's familiar with that. Um, Over 260 high-profile public figures accused of sexual misconduct since April of 2017. Over 260 people whose names you'd very likely recognize. Now, I don't know the details of all these accusations. Maybe many of them are unfounded. Certainly some of them are Though, And I have to imagine, these are people who thought they had covered it up well. Yes, they were crooked. Yes, they had mistreated people in these horrible ways. But they're powerful public figures. I think they probably thought they got away with it. And yet, this truth caught up to them. Whoever makes his ways crooked will be found out. It's just the way it works. And we've, I dare say, we have all experienced this. I know that's true because the Bible teaches that we're all sinful people. We all have crookedness. So think back to your childhood. Let's try to see the reality of this. I bet each one of you, as a child, at some point, at least once, tried to deceive your parents or your teachers. And it didn't work out. And it didn't work out for long, at least. And you were found out. You know, as a kid, you, you think that you're probably pretty savvy at covering your tracks, not realizing that your parents are savvier because they probably lied to their own parents when they were children, and they know the patterns you were found out. Think about your teen years. Did anybody in here ever try to do something crooked in their teen years but get found out? I see parents, like, looking at family members. Yes, I think we probably all could say, yes, that's true. 
Some of you are saying, no, I did crooked stuff in my childhood and teen years. It never got found out. Well, that's not a virtue. That's not something to be proud of. (laughs) The longer you go before being found out, I believe this is true. I'd have to work maybe to make a biblical case for it, but the longer you, the better you are at it, the longer you go before you're found out, that just means that much more consequences are being stored up for when you do get found out. You think of it like a stretch in a rubber band. Okay, from the incident, from the crookedness, the longer you're able to hide it, the tighter the rubber band gets pulled. And so when it snaps to, the more it's going to hurt. You will get found out. Now, maybe you say, well, I did something crooked, and everybody who would have been hurt by it is long gone and dead now. That was 80 years ago. God knows, and one day you'll be face-to-face with him. You get found out. Think about our adult lives. Has anybody tried to do something crooked in their adult lives, tried to cover something, tried to lie, tried to deceive, and gotten found out at work with family? This is how it works. He who makes his way crooked will be found out. And so the insecurity and anxiety that we feel, if it's based on the divided heart and the crooked living that comes from it, is pretty well founded. If you're afraid you're going to get found out, you're just thinking realistically. You are going to get found out. You will. So now let's bring it right now to present day. Church folks are not immune from crookedness. In fact, I think I could make an argument that church folks are probably more tempted to this kind of crookedness than almost anybody else. Because we know what we should be like, and we aspire to be like it, but we're not yet there. We should be just like Jesus Christ. We should be perfect. We wish we were. We want to be, and I think we almost think that people expect us to be. And so when we sin, which we do, or make a mistake or do something foolish, we probably have a stronger temptation to cover it up than others who are not church folks. And so a pattern can develop in a church culture where everybody just refuses to acknowledge the fact that they have sin, and they struggle, and that they're not perfect. And then because I sit here and I see these other church folks who seem to be perfect, I feel like I'm the only one who's not perfect. And so then I start to pretend. I say, well, at least when I'm at church, I need to look perfect because everybody else there is perfect. And soon we're all pretending. And this, the gathering where it should be the very safest to be open and honest about our struggles, becomes the least safe and the least likely place for someone to honestly say, I'm struggling with this kind of sin. I know it's not right and I hate it. I just need prayer. I need help and support to turn away from it. We should be talking about like that a whole lot more often. I am not perfect. You are not perfect. The people who share your pew with you right now are not perfect. The person in the church that you look up to as the most mature Christian still yet is not perfect. Only Jesus Christ was perfect. The Christian life is all about repentance of our sin. I just have to imagine, and I'll tell you why. 
I have to imagine that there is at least somebody, if not multiple people here, who in their hearts, in reality, are just bent over with the anxiety and the strain of hidden sin in their lives. One reason I think that that may be true is that I kept trying to add other Proverbs to this sermon to build it out further, and they just kept falling off. And it just seemed like today this was the one verse for us. So perhaps it's you. I know that anxiety very well. And I have good news for you. If you are here bent over in your heart with the burden of secret sin that you just don't know what to do with, I have really good news for you. God is talking to you right here in this passage, and it's a voice of compassion, not condemnation. It's a voice of mercy. It's a voice of grace. It's a voice of forgiveness. It's a voice of patience. It's a voice of gentleness. This is what Christianity is all about. I want to read the good news to you from 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Just listen to this, this scripture. 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Jesus and proclaim to you. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So start right there. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Inherent in God's character is that he reveals. Like turning on light in a darkened room, he reveals things, and he already knows you. He already knows everything about you down to the bottom of your heart. He has been in there. He has searched every closet. He has opened every drawer. He already knows. And yet he loves you, and yet he holds out to you the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Verse 6, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So many people in churches live a lie because they just want to pretend to be close to God, but they don't actually know him because they've not come face to face with their sin. They've not gone to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and just fully and humbly confessed and repented of their sin. You can't have fellowship with him and at the same time cherish a secret hidden life in the dark where you indulge in sin and feel as if you've gotten away with it. It just doesn't work. He, he disciplines his children. He won't allow it. He loves you too much. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. So this, this is what is available to each and every one of us. Fellowship with one another and with God himself through Jesus Christ. We can truly know each other without anything hidden. And we can truly know God and be known by God without anything hidden. This is The human condition is hiddenness from God and one another. If you think back to Genesis with Adam and Eve, when they sinned, the very first sin, what was one of the first outcomes? Hiddenness. God came to speak to them, and they hid, and they realized they were naked, and they covered themselves up. And they said, we heard you coming, and we were scared because we knew we were naked, and we knew we were sinful, and we were ashamed, and we, we hid, and we covered ourselves up. What Christianity is, is God coming and 
covering us with Jesus' forgiveness and righteousness so we can come out from hiding. We can be ourselves with each other without fear of condemnation or shame. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'll read that verse 9 one more time. This is the door. If you think of someone who, who is just shackled down with secret sin, feeling around the dark, trying to find an escape hatch, this is the escape hatch. Confession. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do you confess your sin? First, you confess it to God. He already knows, but he's waiting for you to come to him and say, God, I am sorry, I have this sin in my life, and I know it's wrong, it's a sin against you. Will you please forgive me and help me to change? Through Jesus Christ, would you forgive me? And through Jesus Christ, would you help me to turn away from it and change? And then you confess to anyone you've sinned against. Our sin is first against God, but secondly, often it's against people. And there may be some person that you need to confess to. You need to say, I did this to you and it was wrong and I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? I'm committed to change. Will you please forgive me? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. As heavy as the anxiety of secret sin is, the relief of forgiveness is so much greater forgives us our sins, and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The Bible says he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west, which is a picture of how it is just completely removed from us. And in Jesus Christ, he sees Jesus' perfection, not our record of sin, not our shame. He doesn't call it to memory ever again. It's completely forgiven. Now, we want to live wisely in this world. Everybody really does. We want to live wisely in this world. And we see in Proverbs that one important part of wisdom is seeking integrity. And we see in the New Testament that the only way to have integrity is through Jesus Christ. To turn from our crookedness and our insecurity to Jesus to have our hearts made whole. And to find the security that can only be found in the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. No more lies and deception and pretense and acting and putting on a persona. Instead, honesty and sincerity. Be the same in the dining room as we are in the kitchen. Same on the outside as we are on the inside. The same in the church as we are with our friends, as we are with our families, as we are at work, as we are in the car as we are on the internet, as we are at the grocery store, to be made whole. Now, I think one of the reasons this sermon was so short and why every proverb I've tried to bolt onto it fell off is maybe the Lord wants us to have a moment to receive this. Remember last week was about receptivity. We never want to let God's word just bounce off of our hearts and not sink in. So let's take a moment in silent prayer, 
to receive this word, and I trust the Holy Spirit to do in each one of us what needs to be done here. Would you bow and pray with me? I'll begin for us, Father, just by inviting you now, in light of your word that we've received, search our hearts with your Holy Spirit and reveal to us anything in there that we need to deal with before you, any crookedness we need to confess and repent of. Please help us to go to Jesus, be made whole so we can live with integrity. Please guide us as we should pray individually now. In Jesus' name, amen.